0: Living Time and the Integration of the Life by Dr. Morris Nichol, we have finally reached chapter 7. I like the number 7, it's a very spiritual number. Seven days in the week, seven spirits of God. It's a very spiritual number. But who cares because nobody cares about anything spiritual today. And if they do, it's probably tarot cards, tea leaves, and I don't know what else, but something really bizarre that I wouldn't call spiritual, but that other people do. People are fond of saying today, I'm not religious, I'm spiritual. Which means... no. I'll tell you what it means. I'll just tell you right up what it means. What it means is, I am not willing to submit to anything except myself. That's what it really means. It's like, no authority is going to be over me. I am going to be my own boss. I'm going to be my own God. And nobody's going to tell me what to do. And fortunately... I don't answer emails, so I don't even care if anybody emails me about that to defend themselves, because people who defend themselves, what can I say? What you defend, you get to keep. And that's why I think it's so funny when you guys defend yourselves. And I just think, fine, then keep it. Stay limited, stay narrow, stay ignorant, stay proud, stay arrogant. It's like people who say they want to be transformed, who say they want to develop, and yet fight for every inch of ground that they would have to give up in order to develop. And I think, go ahead, fight for it, then you can keep it. I'm not going to take it from you, I don't want it. I spent my life trying to get rid of mine, I don't want yours. Chapter 7, we left off with something in Chapter 6, which I'm not even going to bother reading, because it's about the six-pointed star of Solomon, the Seal of Solomon, and what that meant. If you want to know about that, then go back and listen to podcast number 30, Living Time number 30. We're going to move on to something really annoying tonight, and that is Eternity and the Recurrence of Life. And why it's annoying is because this is not something we like to think about. And if you do like to think about it, there's something wrong with you. I'm serious. Spiritually, you are spiritually ill if you like to think about this. Because the only reason to like to think about this is to think, oh, if my life recurs, I'll get to do that again. And most of the things in my life, I don't want to do again because I screwed it up the first time. And if I get to do it again, I want to do it differently the next time. We'll talk more about this as he develops this idea for us. And then I have some ideas that I'd like to toss in that occurred to me as I thought about it. Most people have experienced that sudden sense of familiarity which makes them ask, where, when did this happen before? We call it déjà vu. Or, if it's one of those horrible things, you call it déjà vu-due. We see a place for the first time and yet know that we have seen it before, long ago. But when? We cannot reach the answer. If a scent restores the past, we recognize the faraway scene. We have discussed this, haven't we, that smells have a tendency to trigger memory almost more than anything else. We have the sensation of living momentarily in another part of our lives, as if we re-entered the past. But the strange feeling of familiarity or consciousness of a previous existence is not the same. It remains unsatisfied. We cannot trace it to its source. The past is not restored to consciousness. Yet we feel certain that we have been in that place or done that thing before. So it's not like you are there again. It's like you just had the feeling that you've been here before. So it's not restored to consciousness. It's just this familiarity. Sometimes, in some crisis, the soul becomes detached from what is happening precisely through the feeling that all this happened before. I'll let that one sink in, and you can think about that. If you have experiences like that or you don't, I don't know. But everybody should be allowed to work that out for themselves. So I'm not going to give you any examples from my life because I don't want to color your experience. It was an ancient idea that time is bent in a circle and that all things come round to the same point again. Up to now, we have taken the life as a line in time. Now we come to the further idea of the life being a circle and to the question of the repetition or recurrence of the same events. This is not something that I easily embrace. If it is for you, pardon me for saying that this was a difficult thing for people to get, but it's difficult for me to get. It's difficult for me to embrace. I don't like the idea. But as we develop, as he develops this idea, not as we develop this idea, but as he develops this idea, it does actually become more palatable and more reasonable and more understandable. At first blush, though, it's like we dig our heels in. We grit our teeth. You know, you feel your jaws tighten a little. No, I don't think so. I don't want to think that all this happened before and it just keeps happening over and over and over again. Like some bad twilight zone thing where you're, st- where you're stuck or, or groundhog day where you're stuck in this thing. But groundhog day had a message and it was a darn good message. So let's just try to relax our minds, relax our jaws stay on our toes instead of our heels and see if we can just allow some new meaning to be forced into our tight little contracted craniums. I will begin with some experiences of the life being seen in terms of recurrence and not only the life but the universe regarded as a series of repeating events. These experiences were obtained by the use of anesthetics which can sometimes induce a special state of consciousness. Anybody who's ever been under knows that that's true. There is something that happens when they have you count backwards from a 100. Some of us get to 95. (laughs) The tough nuts get to 95. Of course, there'll always be some liar in the group who say, I got all the way down to 1, and they start all over again. Yeah, okay, whatever. You're better than the rest of us. Good for you. After studying these experiences, we will pass to some general views about recurrence, ancient and modern. If all process in time is curved... Everything will come back to its starting point. The life will recur. The life is a circle. We will come once more to the same points in the life, to the same experiences. Here I will interject something. Remember the children of Israel, and their 40 years in the wilderness, and they basically walked around in a circle for 40 years. And what was that circle around? It was around a mountain, that's right. They walked around the same mountain, for 40 years until an entire generation died off and a new generation could go into the promised land. There is a lot of significance to this, this circular pattern in the 40 years. 40 is another one of those spiritual numbers, 440. means completion. It's how long it took, 40 years. So did they literally walk around for 40 years in the wilderness? I don't know. They could have. But that's not what's important. What's important is they walked around that mountain until they got it, until it was time to move on. And I don't know whether you've noticed this or not, but that's how you are in your life. You go through something until you get it, until it's time to move on. And then you move on to the next lesson. If you're on the path, if you're attempting to develop. If you're not, then you're doing the same thing, but you're not getting anywhere. You're just walking around the mountain, hopefully waiting to wake up a little until you can move on to the next thing. So that's what I wanted to say about that. But we cannot believe that the realization that this is so belongs to our ordinary level of consciousness any more than does the feeling of the living existence of all the life or the pure feeling of I. So clearly, we don't have in our ordinary state of consciousness, in our ordinary state of consciousness, we don't think, oh, yes, I've done all this before, oh, I'm doing this again. You don't think that. We basically balk at that idea. We want everything to be fresh and new and exciting and wonderful right now. Even though every day you wake up and you do pretty much the same thing. But you don't want to see that as recurrence. You don't want to see that as, yes, I did this yesterday. It's so clear to us that you say somebody, well, how's it going? Same old, same old. What does that mean? What's new? Nothing's new. I mean, we have these sayings and we unconsciously tell the truth. Same old, same old. Because in our ordinary state of consciousness, that's exactly what it is. In our ordinary state of consciousness, there isn't anything new. And in a higher state of consciousness, a much higher state of consciousness, there isn't anything new. But that's an entirely different thing. And we'll talk about that some other time, if I live long enough. If not, oh well. Let's remember that the knowledge value belonging to higher levels of consciousness cannot be the same as that which characterizes our ordinary level. Clearly, that's true. Clearly, trigonometry is at a totally different level than arithmetic. Then addition and subtraction. Clearly, it's at a different level. So, we have to know that the knowledge value belonging to the higher levels cannot be the same as that which characterizes our ordinary level. If you're going to be in a higher level, things are going to be different than what we have here. What is merely theory to our ordinary consciousness can be the direct cognition of real fact on a higher level. When you have a teacher in school, you're young, you don't know the subject, and the teacher does. He will tell you something, and for you it will be a theory. But for him it's a real fact that he has got from direct cognition. He knows it to be true. But you don't know it to be true yet. You have to grow before you will know it to be true. You will have to have experiences before you will know it to be true. The idea of recurrence is a very old one. I would explain its persistence in a historical sense as due to its being cognitive fact at a higher level of consciousness. This is where some people will leave off. Well, yes, you would explain it that way, but that's just a theory and blah, 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 blah. All he's doing is laying the groundwork for understanding. For people who want to understand, they will allow him to lay the groundwork. For people who don't want to understand, for the argumentative, for the recalcitrant, that will be different. They will go, well, that's just a theory and now you're saying theories and blah, 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 blah. They'll start to argue. I recommend that you don't argue. I recommend that you do something very different instead. I recommend that you make effort to open your mind and turn these ideas over in your mind and look at them from different angles and see if you can extract some new meaning for yourself from these ideas. See if you can use these ideas as kind of like a pry bar to get the clamshell that is your mind open a little bit to let something in. And people, I'm sure, think they're very open-minded. And they're right. Most people are so open-minded that their brains fell out while they were walking down the road. But that's not how open-minded I want you to be. I don't want you to accept anything just because someone said it. I want you to test it and try it for yourself. Prove it for yourself. So that's what I would like from you. If you will give me that, then you will get something from this. Many anesthetic experiences have been put on record. They are broadly divisible into two classes. In the first, the dream level is touched, underlying but not very close to the ordinary conscious state. In the second, degrees of consciousness above the ordinary level are experienced. In taking either, for example, a man dreams that he is rushing in a train through darkness, or in the hands of torturers, personification of sensations. Now you do understand that sometimes people will dream that they're having their arm ripped off or they're being tortured in some way. And what it is is they've just slept in one position too long and the sensations have triggered something to their subconscious mind that's trying to get them to get off that arm or roll over or move. So that's really what he's talking about, personification of sensations. And if you already knew that, then just bear with me because there are some people who don't. Such experiences belong to dream states and spring from the tendency of dream consciousness to find analogies. But there are recorded experiences of quite a different order. Now remember that Dr. Morris Nickel studied with Carl Jung, who made tremendous inroads into this whole dream thing and archetypes and the collective unconscious and things that people today are not really familiar with. Because we're so dumbed down. Because we're so smart now and we're so advanced now. We have our smartphones who think for us now. We have our computers who think for us. And when they go down, we all turn into vegetative idiots. Or angry idiots. How dare this computer break? What am I going to do? Oh, get a life. Was that too, too much? No? Okay. No, probably not for you. I guess you're okay. But, you know, some people, Facebook goes down and they have to call their psychiatrist. Facebook, I don't know what anybody's saying about me. Alright, that may be a bit of an exaggeration. No, I tend to be sarcastic. I'm like that, it's true. Facetious. I like that word better than sarcastic. Facetious. So he says, one of these records was made by a scientist of recent times, William Ramsey, from which I propose to quote, Not only did a changed feeling of time and a sense of eternity, everlastingness, enter into his experiences, but also the feeling, or rather the direct perception, of the recurrence of things. This is from Partial Anesthesia by the late Sir William Ramsay, published in the Proceedings of the Society for Psychical Research, Volume 9, 1894. We must recall here the general rule that a change in the time sense characterizes higher degrees of consciousness. We have talked about this before, with a poet or a writer, I can't remember now who it was, but we've talked about this before, about how he would have this complete change in the sense of time. It was like he was outside of time. It was a completely different experience. So let's remember that a change in the time sense characterizes higher degrees of consciousness. You know for yourself that sometimes you'll get into a higher state. All right, let's take, for example, something I know you're all familiar with, because you all, well, all except one. Two. Did Vipassana. I know that you experienced sitting there for an hour and having it be 10 years. And I know that you experienced sitting there for an hour and then having it be over. And you think, well, that I just sat down. You know it was the same hour because they timed you. The bell rang. It was like ding, ding. You know, it's that's it. And you know that over the 10 days, you would have different times. And one would drag and one would go by so quickly. Okay. I, admittedly, most of them dragged. And occasionally, one went by quickly. And that was more toward the end. After you were deeper and deeper into the meditative state, after you had meditated 10 hours a day for a number of days, then it was like, well, I guess people today would say, yes, then you were brainwashed and you were blah, 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 blah. People who will never do that, who will only bag on it, will say you were brainwashed or yes, they wore you down or it was this or it was that. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, I don't care what they say. You know, you did it. They don't know. They didn't do it. Have you ever noticed that the experts in life are the people who can't do it? Who are the critics? Are the critics the actors or are the critics the journalists? The critics are the journalists. Did they ever act? Have they ever been in a movie? Have they been in a stage play? No. Who are the critics for food? Are they the chefs? No. They're the people who go in and eat food at different places and then write about it. What makes them experts? That they write about it? That they have an opinion and that someone's willing to listen to it? That someone's willing to buy whatever their opinion is written in? That's what makes them experts. Critics are like teachers. Oh, this is going to get me in hot water. I had a teacher who said, teachers were people who couldn't make it in the real world. People who couldn't do it, but they could teach other people how to do it. It's not a bad thing. It's not a negative thing. There are some people who simply cannot do it, but they do understand, and they can teach other people to do it. Teaching is a gift. Communicating with another human being and imparting knowledge in a way that they can receive it is a gift. It's an art form, and I consider that to be an art just as much as painting or sculpture or music or anything else. In fact, maybe even more so, because I think people are more important than a palette or a piece of clay or a piece of wood or a piece of stone. I think people are more important, and I think connecting with people and inspiring them and encouraging them to grow and to seek and to understand and to expand is one of the highest things in life that you can do. It is a service, and it is a service that not everybody is equipped for. Sadly, we need a lot of teachers because there are a lot of people who need to be taught. And sadly, there are not a lot of teachers, not with that gift. There are people who have been trained to do this and to do that, and they do it by the book, like bureaucrats. I know this sounds a lot like my opinion, doesn't it? And it is. It is my opinion based on a lot of years of experience. So take it or leave it. It's not that important, but it is important if you understand that the highest calling in life is service. If you don't understand that, then you will later, maybe, if you're fortunate. In the following experiments, small quantities of ether were inhaled successively and the changes in consciousness noted. Sometimes the observer described his sensations at the moment to an assistant who made notes, and sometimes he recorded them himself. In the initial stages, when the effect of ether was lightly felt, Ramsay first noticed a heightened perception of the outer world. Two states apparently supervened. One, of attention to minute details, furniture, surrounding objects, etc. And the other, of complete subordination to the idea of theory of universe. Are you with me so far? It's a little archaic, the way he's putting things, and they're words that we're not always familiar, theory of universe, and like that. The transition from one to the other was well-defined and instantaneous. He passed from outer to inner abruptly. We shall see that when he was subordinated to the inner, the universe appeared to be within him, and he was at the center of things. Yet, in this state, he often retained the power of seeing outside things, only whenever his glance fell on any object, he saw it in a new way, which will be described. After attaining to the inner stage, an overwhelming impression forced itself upon me that the state in which I then was, was reality. People who've done psychedelic drugs will recognize this. People who haven't will just say, anybody who's done psychedelic drugs is an idiot, they're going to jump out of a building and kill themselves or whatever. You know. So again, I hate to dismiss people, but I don't have any problem dismissing ignorance. And if you haven't done it, if you're ignorant of it, and you have an opinion of it, the very least you can do, if you care anything about truth, honesty, is to say, it's just my opinion. Sadly, most ignorant people can't tell their opinion from a hole in the ground. They think their opinion is the way it is. And it takes a long, long time before you can realize that most everything that you hold to be true is your opinion, that there's very little that you actually know. Most everything is your opinion. It's your opinion about your experience. It's your opinion about someone else's experience. The truth is what's so. Your opinion is what's not. That's the bottom line. Your opinion is what's not so. If you happen to have an opinion that is what's so, it's really not your opinion. It's the truth. And you can't own the truth, so it can't be your opinion. It must be the truth. Sadly, we are so arrogant, so puffed up, that we think that our opinion is the truth. (sighs) It's really boring when you think about it. I mean, it's really boring. Human beings are boring in that way. We're so predictably arrogant. We're so predictably self-absorbed that it's boring. And when you find someone who's not, it's so refreshing. You want to be around that person. Even though they're a little, they're a little kooky. They're a little off. There's something a little off about them. But there's also this excitement, like being around a child. I was telling Curtis this afternoon that I was watching these guys work. In the yard, and they were—they're like in their forties. One of them's forty-six, and the other one—I don't know—probably late thirties, early forties. And they were out in the yard working, and they were really going for it. I mean, really working hard. And they were laughing and smiling. And I thought, whatever happened to people being able to do that? You know what happened? You know, you see people—they, it's like they're all gray about work. Have you noticed that? So, So it's not just me. And I think, and and I looked out the window and I saw these guys. And honestly. It just made my heart sing. It just made me happy to see them so happy. And they were just doing manual labor. But, you know, when you think about it, if you've done manual labor in the not-too-distant past, you know that it's something that can make you happier than almost anything else. Well, I've got a million dollars. Well, I've got a great job. I get to go out and dig ditches. You're not allowed to even think like that anymore. Just being happy working... People think there's something wrong with you. No, you have to ask for more money. No, you have to have breaks. No, you have to have vacation time. No, you have your rights. They're exploiting you. Blah, 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 blah. It's like, look, why don't you just... Well, I can't say that. Why don't you just bug off? I want to be happy. And you want me to be unhappy like you. This is a no-brainer. Just choose what makes you happy. If you're happy digging a ditch then dig the best ditch that you can dig and be happy doing it. If you're happy singing a song, then sing the best song that you can sing and be happy doing it. If you're happy cutting someone's hair, then give them the best haircut you can give them and be happy doing it. Look, just be happy, like the song, you know, don't worry, be happy. But we're not into happiness anymore, we're into our rights. And if you really want, if you really want the recipe for misery, it's try and get your rights. Try and get what's owed to you. Don't try to give other people what they should have. Don't try and do something for them. But you go out there and try and get what's yours. You go after what you have a right to have. That is the recipe for misery on this planet. And it seems like everybody's got it today. That's the recipe that's passed around more than any other recipe there is. You get a different recipe. You want to be happy? Do what you love. I don't care what it is. Do what you love. If you genuinely love it, and it is a service, because it's got to be of service. If it's not of service to someone, something, someone, somehow, then I question it. But if it's a service, and you genuinely love doing it, do it, and be happy. And don't worry about what you're going to get paid, and what's going to become of you. If you do that, you will be taken care of. That's my tip to anyone who cares to have it. We shall see that when he was subordinated to the inner, the universe appeared to be within him. He was at the center of things. Yet in this state, he often retained the power of seeing outside things. Only whenever his glance fell on any object, he saw it in a new way, which will be described. So now we're talking about new meaning. After attaining to the inner stage, an overwhelming impression forced itself upon me that the state in which I then was, was reality. That now I had reached the true solution of the secret of the universe. Yeah, I remember this happening to me one time and I wrote it down. And the next morning I couldn't wait. When I woke up, I couldn't wait to get the notebook to read it. And I couldn't read it. It was all gibberish. (laughs) So I figured, I deduced from that that the secret of the universe is gibberish to us. And this sounds funny, but he said this in the beginning. And I will try to remind you of what it was that he said in the beginning that is really the same thing. And that was that the higher states of consciousness could not possibly be like our ordinary states of consciousness. They must be different. And so, what makes perfect sense in a higher state of consciousness will be gibberish here. And I promise you, that is the case. I know, because I've tried to explain things to people, people who I thought could understand. And the glazed look in their eyes was just amazing. And, you know, they'd be like, out to lunch. You know, you'd want to knock on their heads. Is anybody home? So he goes on to talk about this, about his later experiments with anesthetics. I have tried with success to recall events of the day, how I was occupied in my laboratory, how I walked down Oxford Street in the morning, what I saw and whom I met, and with success. But they impressed me as a fleeting vision, something quite trivial and transitory. The main and impressive fact for me was that I was self-existent and that time and space were illusions. This is very important, that I was self-existent, and that time and space were illusions. You may not grasp this immediately, but we will expand upon it. This was the real ego, on whose surface ripples of incident arose, to fade and vanish like the waves on a pond. He's not talking about the ego that we all know, this puffed-up, stupid, false personality that we're constantly protecting and buffing and guarding. He's not talking about that. He's talking about the real ego, meaning the real I, upon which, on whose surface, ripples of incident arose to fade and vanish like the waves on a pond. You have had this experience in meditation. I know you have. We all did. If you went through those courses as many times as, well, you didn't go through them as many times as I did, but I know each of you did it twice, at least twice. So if you went through that, you had some taste of this. You got some taste of this, of just sitting there and having all of these sensations and things arise on your body, fade and pass away. And a new one, arise, fade, pass away. And you just let them be. You were this something eternal behind that, while this transitory stuff just came and went. And it was meaningless, truly meaningless. You could see pain, or you could see pleasure. You could feel pain and pleasure, and it was the exact same thing. It was absolutely meaningless. It was just a sensation. Now, this is difficult for people who haven't experienced it to understand. But you have experienced it, so you do understand. And all I'm asking you to do is recall it, because that's what he's talking about. The emphasis of this stage is plainly upon the reality of himself, upon I. Before the stage set in, the emphasis was upon the outer, as when, at the commencement of the inhalation of ether, he notices how a more comprehensive perception embraces what he looks at, and he sees objects in certain new relationships. That is, his eye catches sight, the bars of the grate, or the cross pieces of the window sash, and the idea of a harmonic arrangement suggested itself, as if the bars of the grate were arranged so as to form gaps corresponding to the fundamental note, the fifth and the octave. Okay, now that's pretty intense. And that's one level that happens. That's one level above our ordinary level. Because we can see that ordinarily we wouldn't see things that way. That we get into a special heightened state of consciousness and then we start to see things that way. In one experiment begun with nitrous oxide, he wrote down his impressions himself. Singing in ears, slight difficulty in focusing, etc. He continued with ether became unusually sensitive to outside things, heard water dropping from cistern, tingling in spinal cord of neck, beginning of consciousness of previous existence. He swallows and marks this stage of swallowing as important, as a definite stage in the whole range of sensations. He allows himself to recover slightly and writes, This refers to feeling that same stage always recurs and to feeling of external existence. You getting this? He sees, remember he says this change comes abruptly, and now he's saying that this stage was marked by swallowing. If you're swallowed and all of a sudden, do it. You can literally, if you consciously swallow, you can get into a different state of consciousness. It is this feeling of previous existence and recurrence that I will now trace in further experiments which were recorded in notes made at the time by his woman assistant particular feeling about the nature of the universe arose in his mind owing to the nature of these experiences. In one experiment, four doses of ether were inhaled over a period of five minutes. After the second dose, the mental state was clear, but Ramsay begins to be aware of what he calls the recurrence of events. Everything has occurred before. Trace of beginning sense of having been here before. Feeling of recurrence. Example given, table, mantelpiece, etc., having been always there. After the fourth dose, following a period of silence lasting two minutes, the eyes being open and motionless, Ramsay exclaims, This one little piece of enormous coherence of universe, utterly ridiculous in its smallness, more complete recovery. Every bit of these events recurred, except fact of woman instead of man as observer. Cycle of events recurring bothers me greatly because I expect each stage to go further, that is, stage in evolution of universe. So this is what I talk about, and this is what I said, recurrence, I don't like the idea of recurrence, and this is why. Events recurring bothers me greatly because I expect each stage to go further, each stage in the evolution of the universe. We like our illusion of progress. We like our illusion of everything's always getting better and better. The main feeling is that everything has happened before and that in some way everything always is. The idea is twofold. With this alwaysness of things is a continual re-experiencing of them, going around the mountain again. This re-experiencing of things within this alwaysness of things makes a cyclical process, going around the mountain. But you know that going around the mountain wasn't the same each time. But it was the same thing. But it wasn't the same thing. Do you understand what I'm saying? Okay. There are cycles of events constantly recurring. Amidst all these cycles of events that here he hints as constituting the universe, and in another experiment definitely states that it is. He discerns stages. It is possible to get beyond a particular cycle, and it is obvious that at the moment of the above experiment, he understood that getting beyond recurring cycles of events is connected with a feeling of evolution. Remember, he said, cycle of events recurring bothers me greatly because I expect each stage to go further, that is, stage in evolution of the universe the sense of previous existence, and the sense of re-experiencing what has happened before. Not in exactly the same way, for he mentions a woman observer being present instead of a man. So see, we have too much science fiction in our heads. So it's hard for us to accept this idea of reoccurrence without all those science fiction things coming into our heads. Thinking, oh, it's got to be this way, it's got to be that way. But he's not saying that. He's saying that the merry-go-round goes round. And it's the same merry-go-round all the time, but you can experience it in a different way. You can get something else from it. You can get other meaning from it. This really fits with our world and with our lives. You have lived a number of Thursdays, a number of Wednesdays, a number of Sundays. The same day comes the same time in the week, the same time, you know, same year, year after year. It's always the same. The sun's in the same position and so on and so forth. But you experience it differently. So he says, together with the feeling that all is always and all is always recurring, that it is possible to reach further cycles of experience only by escaping from those in which we turn. The only way that the children of Israel escaped going around that mountain for 40 years was to escape from those cycles in which they were turning. What were the cycles they were turning in? And what had to happen? A whole generation had to die. Well, that doesn't mean a whole generation had to die, and maybe it does. But for you, it means a whole generation of your thinking needs to die. A whole generation of your feeling needs to die. So all of your old thoughts and your old feelings need to die. Your old self needs to die so that you can get out of those cycles and into some other cycle. And then guess what? Yes, that will have to die too. So, escaping from those in which we turn, and that this further stage of experiencing would be the experiencing of a further stage in the evolution of the universe. You would enter a new stage, but that a stage that has always been there waiting for you to enter it. But a stage that you've already left because you're already in a stage that's beyond that. You're already in a stage that's beyond that, but you're in all the stages of the past too. And see, this is the whole thing. That This is where our minds tilt. But just go with me for a while and try not to go on tilt. All this insight is contained, I maintain, in these brief notes and results from bordering on a higher degree of consciousness. We know that Timothy Leary and that Alperd guy, whatever his name was, he turned into Baba Ram Das. What was that guy's name? Ram Das. Do you remember? No. Nobody remembers. Okay, so I'm too old. What can I say? I remember Ram Das. He was a university professor with Timothy Leary when they got into LSD. And they just opened up a whole new world for people. But see, they were doing the same thing that this guy was doing with ether and with nitrous oxide, only they were doing it with the drugs that the government was working with. Oh yeah, we forget all that, don't we? We forget that the government was using that. They were practicing mind control. They wanted to get some mind control. Not that they were ever trying to control us, because they don't have to. <laughs> Richard. Richard. Alpert. Richard Alpert, that's who Ram Das was, Richard Alpert. So it was Timothy Leary and Richard Alpert who did the whole thing on LSD until the government got involved and made it illegal. It was legal. And then the government got involved and made it illegal. We will not turn to further confirmation about any of this because we're out of time. I love to say we're out of time. Especially since all this is about time. We're always going on and on about how time doesn't exist. But see, people like to take that. And they make up weird stuff. People are so religious. You said there's no time, and then you said, we're out of time. Well, how could you be out of time if there is no time? First of all, I don't even answer morons like that. And the reason I don't is because all they want to do is argue. And if they genuinely don't get it, they genuinely don't get it, then I will answer them. And I will say, okay, because down here where we live, we are stuck, imprisoned, in time. Just like if you were in prison, you couldn't go to Sears and Robux, you couldn't go to Penny's, you couldn't go to Rubio's, you couldn't go to McDonald's, you couldn't just get up and go, because you're in prison. Well, down here, we are in prison. There's a higher level of being where people are not in prison. There are different prisons. There's maximum security prisons. There are country clubs where they put all the politicians and the people who steal billions. And then there are prisons for the people who smoke to join, and they put them in hell. It's like that. But when you look at it, you see that there are different levels of contraction and restriction. We are in a certain level of contraction and restriction. We look down at lower levels of contraction and restriction, and we say, they're in prison, but we're free. But then there are people above us who are looking at us and going, you're in prison, man, you're going to work every day, and you're doing this 9 to 5 thing, and you're like in prison, you're a slave, you're on the hamster wheel. And there are people who look at those people like, well, you're in prison because you're like that. So it's just scale levels. And at our level, we are restricted by this time psychology. But at another level, there is no such thing as time. There is no restriction. And that's what I mean. When I say there is no time, I'm talking about a higher level that's outside of our ordinary state of consciousness, something that, quite frankly, to be very honest with you, we cannot now comprehend. All we can do is talk about it, theorize about it, make examples about it, and try to reach for it. That is the purpose of this, to try and get in the process of expanding our own consciousness, raising our own level of being to a place where these things are not so crazy to us. That's all I'm asking from you. I'm not asking for you to think, oh yeah, that's how it is. I don't want you to do that. I don't want you to lie. I don't want you to pretend you understand something that you don't understand. What I want you to do is I want you to do the hard work of trying to deal with your restrictions, your limitations, your objections to this. Because all of those things, all of those habits of thinking, all of those illusions that we have, they all have to be deconstructed. And like I've said before, It's not difficult to wake up. It's difficult to stay awake. Everybody wakes up once in a while. But they go right back to sleep. The difficulty is staying awake. It's not waking. It's staying awake. Because everything in our world, everything in our minds, everything around us, and all the people around us, the minute that you wake up, they all try to get you to go back to sleep. The whole world, the whole universe is set up... Not the whole universe, but this whole world is set up to try and get you to hypnotize you back into sleep. And it works. It's brilliant, really, when you think about it. It works. It's almost flawless. And rarely does anyone wake up. And when they do, generally, they are killed by the people they woke up around. Or at least, if they're not killed, then they're imprisoned, or they're put in an institution somewhere and given a lobotomy or whatever to stop them from talking about what is a no-no here, what is taboo for us to understand. You don't want the cow who knows where they're headed talking to the other cows because it might upset the way of things. You know, when they kill sheep, there's a phrase, they have a Judas goat. And what it is, it's a goat who they don't kill. It goes into the slaughterhouse, but they let it pass through. And then they kill what comes behind it. And they use that goat to lead them, they used to back in the day. They use that goat to lead them into the slaughterhouse so that they think, well, he's leading us, it's all going to be okay. And they let him go through, and they kill all the other ones. We are weird people, strange, three-brained creatures that are fragmented and divided and not in possession of ourselves. And under the illusion that we are, under the imagination that we are, single whole, one brain, one will, one whole person. And it simply is not true. And until we begin to see that, we have absolutely no hope of developing beyond it. And on that happy note, I'll say good night and have a pleasant tomorrow.